Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this third Sunday of Advent where we celebrate joy. And it's always my prayer that you will know the presence of Christ with us and that you would find inspiration, comfort, and the challenge and challenge for the living of these days. So today we talk about joy. And the question I throw out is, what gives you joy? A friend of mine, a widower who is dating in his 60s, asks this of his dates. And I think it's a great question because the answer reveals a lot about a person's priorities and passions. What gives you joy is an open-ended question that sparks a depth of conversation and would help one get to know someone at a very deep and a very deep level and potentially measure compatibility. Now, some people make a distinction between joy and happiness. Happiness, they assert, is temporary. You know, getting an ice cream cone and buying a new toy make you happy. Joy, conversely, may be learning that you're going to become a grandparent for the first time, or the feeling you get when holding a newborn baby. And I'm, I'm not one to split hairs because things that make me joyful also make me happy. But I also sense that joy is a deeper feeling and a deeper knowing um, or contentment based on faith. I can have joy, for example, even in sadness and grieving because my faith tells me that all will truly be well one day, if not in this life, than in the life to come. This kind of joy reminds me of a story about John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. You have to indulge me here for a moment. I went to a Methodist seminary. Now, when John America from England, his fellow travelers were English and German Moravians, a religious group whose strong faith really impressed and influenced him. And on the voyage, he had observed their seriousness of behavior and humility. He witnessed them freely serving the other passengers, doing things without complaining, things he said the English would not undertake. And at one point, when the sea broke over the ship and split the main sail in pieces and covered the ship and poured in between the decks, and a terrible screaming began among the English, uh, the Moravians calmly sang a psalm and carried on with their worship service that had begun before the incident. Afterwards, John Wesley asked them, were you not afraid? And a Moravian answered him, I thank God, no. Wesley pressed on, were not your women and children afraid? And the man replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. And Wesley went on to remark about the difference between the crying and trembling English and the God-fearing Moravians. 
He concluded the story by saying, at 12, the wind fell. This was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. I imagine the great faith and abiding joy the Moravians must have had in their hearts to face peril so calmly and with such certainty that God was with them in both life and death. Now, our scriptures today contain expressions of joy because this is Joy Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent, the day churches light the pink candle for joy. And I want to take a bit of a dive into our passage today um, that are, in reality, expressions of joy. The first one is a psalm. It's the song of a sense entitled, A Harvest of Joy. There are 15 songs of ascent in our Psalter, and they were the psalms sung by the Israelites as they proceed to worship in the temple or ascended the road to Jerusalem to attend three pilgrim festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Psalm 126, our psalm today, is a community song of trust or confidence that proclaims God as the one who brings joy out of sorrow, laughter out of tears, and good out of evil. For me, it's a psalm or song echoing the theme of resurrection, the greatest joy of all. The psalmist prays, may those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy carrying their sheaves. We all get this image of sadness and emptiness turning into great joy and fullness at the end of the psalm. And this is the theme of resurrection, something that can give us great joy. Now Mary's song of praise and joy, also known as the Magnificat, is that portion of gospel reading we had from Luke today. Similar to Psalm 126, she talks about the hungry being filled with great things. Much as resurrection is, Mary's song is an inversion of the usual order of things. In her song, the rich are sent away empty. She sings of the joy of the natural and unjust order of the world being inverted. Now, I imagine that Mary uttered the Magnificat ecstatically. She was in her cousin Elizabeth's pregnant uh, presence, and, and Mary already knew that she was chosen to bear the Messiah. And the song is called the Magnificat because she is magnifying the Lord with joyful praise, much as the pilgrims in our psalm today were as they sang their song of ascent on the way to Jerusalem. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Often this hymn, the first in the New Testament, is sung in churches on Christmas Eve. Someday take a, a good look at it and see how truly revolutionary it is. Verses 52 and 53 says, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The Magnificat has 
been called the most revolutionary document in the world because it reverses the world's values and turns them upside down. And let me tell you what some theologians have made of it throughout modern history. E. Stanley Jones, a famous preacher of two generations ago, was the first to call the Magnificat the most revolutionary document in the world. Geldenhese, a Dutch theologian, said the Magnificat announces powerful revolutionary principles. Murrow, another theologian, talks about the revolutionary germ found in the Magnificat. Barclay, an, an English theologian, says the Magnificat is a bombshell and a revolutionary terror. It takes the standards of the world and turns them upside down. Uh, William Barclay also teaches that in the Magnificat there are three revolutions, an economic revolution, a political revolution, and a moral revolution. Still another author says that the Magnificat terrified the Russian czars. Martin Luther said the Magnificat comforts the lowly and terrifies the rich. Gilmore, another theologian, said the Magnificat fosters revolutionaries in our churches. He said that the church needs the leaven of discontent and the Magnificat makes the church restive against poverty and wretchedness. I know we're so apt to think of Mary as a young, sweet, mild, virginal, and trusting woman or young girl, but what we don't realize is that she's God's revolutionary. One article I read about Mary referred to her as a punk rocker in her role as a revolutionary. She and her cousin Elizabeth, who was carrying John the Baptist at the same time, are the pregnant embodiments of the revolution, the change in order and change in era that is now coming upon the earth. The one woman is old, and her son John the Baptist will end an old era by preparing the way for the new. The other woman is young and a virgin, and her son Jesus will usher in the new era. Right here in this passage, we're moving from the old covenant and the law to the new covenant, in which God's law is put into our minds and, and written upon our hearts. And this is really what the meaning of the parable of old wineskins and, and new, new wine was all about. Now, you'll remember at the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel told Mary that her aged and supposedly barren relative, Elizabeth, is already six months with child. So Mary quickly departs to visit Elizabeth in some unnamed village in the Judean hill country. And back then, you didn't call or phone or text to plan a visit. You, you just went. And our passage tells us that Mary sent out she set out with haste, and one wonders if it was to hide or become accustomed to her unwed pregnancy so she wouldn't have to endure any shame in her home village. Well, maybe this visitation was because Gabriel had mentioned Elizabeth's similarly miraculous pregnancy, and this was to be a type of confirmation for Mary 
though Mary had already accepted his words. Mostly, I think, it may have been because Mary would, find, would, Mary would find encouragement in Elizabeth's home, where she remained for three months. In any case, the two women are now drawn by a common, joyful experience, pregnancy, an apt theme of Advent. We joyfully await a baby who will change the world and give us lasting hope, peace, and joy. As Richard Rohr said in his devotional this morning or his meditation that I receive every morning in my email inbox, we're always waiting to see spirit revealing itself through matter. We're always waiting for matter to become a new form in which spirit is revealed. Mary's words depict God's joyful vision for the world. God's vision is an inversion of the usual order. The richest and the most powerful do not come out on top. Those who have, those whose lives are filled with plenty, are called to change, to open their lives to God and to others, because God will scatter the proud. The poor and disenfranchised now will have cause for joy. Those who do not think they are good enough or righteous enough will be raised up. In God's joyful kingdom, they will become the leaders, the powerful. It is the rich who will follow. These words are a magnification, a magnification of light. Our psalm and gospel reading today are ones of joyful praise. God's light shines on everything, illuminating the dark corners and dirty vestibules of our world and exposing the pain and injustices that still exist. We have hope for change, changes we can make within ourselves and a certain future to hope for where pain and, and sadness will be no more. So therefore, have joy, my friends. The light of Christmas is coming. It's bright. It's magnified. God came into the world to turn the world upside down or maybe right side up. God didn't start it by choosing a, a great religious leader or a political powerhouse or even a preacher. God chose a girl, a poor underage girl, from a third world country with dark skin and dark eyes whose marital status seemed to teeter on the edge of acceptable society. But through her, God chose to shine the light on the whole world. And our response must be to have a deep and abiding joy and contentment in our faith to reflect that light and magnify it further. So I'll end with this. At a conference in a Presbyterian church in Omaha, people were given a helium, they were all given helium-filled balloons and told to release them at some point in the service when they felt like expressing their joy in their hearts. Now, since they were mainline Protestants like us, they weren't free to say hallelujah or praise the Lord. If I were texting here, I would interject, LOL. All through the service, balloons ascended, but when it was over, 
one-third of all the balloons were unreleased. So here's your challenge today. Don't be part of that one-third. Let your balloons go up with joy. The harvest of all joys awaits. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.